I want to welcome you to Genesis this morning. My name is Ben. I'm the campus pastor here at our Noblesville campus, and I'm excited to, uh, to continue on in our study this morning in the flesh. We've been looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus recorded in the four Gospels, and this morning we're going to look at some of his best-known teachings, and it's a portion of Scripture that's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew's gospel, it covers three entire chapters, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And that's where we're going to be spending our time today. So if you brought a Bible with you, you can go ahead and jump to Matthew chapter 5. If you didn't bring a Bible, there are some under the seats around you. If you don't own a Bible, we want you to keep one of those as your own. But Matthew chapter 5, and that's where we're going to be uh, spending most of our time today. Now, I want you to know right off the bat that this is not going to be an exhaustive study of these passages, okay? There is no way in the short amount of time that we have this morning that we could unpack all of what Jesus had to say uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. But instead, I want to give you some context that I think will be helpful in understanding this teaching. And then I want to highlight three major themes in the Sermon on the Mount. And then it's going to be your turn, okay? Because this week, I want to give you some homework to do. But it's, it's the kind of homework that you look forward to doing, right? Because I want you to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And I want you to read through it over the course of a week, and I want you to pay attention. Maybe take some notes today on this context and on these themes. And I want you to do that, uh, paying attention as you read through the Sermon on the Mount. Because here, here's the thing that we really need to understand before we get going. Before we get into this, I want us all to recognize this, okay? The Sermon on the Mount is not about how to live in order to be saved. Rather, it shows saved people how to live. That's what that should say. It shows saved people how to live. Now, do you understand the difference between those two statements? It's not about how to live in order to be saved. Like, this is just a list of things, and if you do everything on the list, then boom, you're in. You're good enough, and you get to go to heaven. No, rather, it shows saved people how to live. And that phrase, saved people, that may sound strange to you if you're new to church or new to faith, but it's a term that we would use for someone who has put their trust in Jesus They've accepted his free gift of eternal life, and they are following him, okay? We're talking about Christ followers, and maybe that's you this morning. You've confessed Jesus with your mouth, you've believed in your heart, but maybe you're asking, like, what do we do now? What's next, right? And one of the great things about the Sermon on the Mount is that it answers the what now question for us. It shows saved people how to live. And and if that's not you, maybe you're just exploring Jesus' claims. Maybe you're just kind of looking at at the faith, looking at Christianity. I want to invite you to check this out too. Read it. Read it with us this week. Ask questions of it. Keep exploring Jesus. But understand, the Sermon on the Mount is not about how to live in order to be saved. Rather, it shows saved people how to live. Now, One more thing to keep in mind as we study today and as you read this week, Jesus' first audience for these teachings were first century Jews who had grown up under the old covenant. It's what's called the Torah 
or our English Bibles call it the law. But you can know, as you hear me say Torah and law this morning, that's the same thing, okay? Those are interchangeable words. But it was God's instructions to Israel for how to live in this world. See, when God sent Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, he took them into the wilderness and he led them to a mountain called Mount Sinai. And he established a covenant with his people there. And the covenant said, you know what, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. It was God's way of marrying himself to the Jewish people. And if we're to think of it like a wedding ceremony, then the Torah is really God's wedding gift to his bride. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you've maybe heard us talk about the Torah or the law, this might be a new way of thinking about those things. Because we have this misconception that the law was burdensome. But the more that I've read and the more I've studied this, I don't think that was true. In fact, the Jewish people loved the law. They held it high. They celebrated it. They even had a festival dedicated to to every year celebrating it and lifting it high and declaring their love for the law. And when you consider how brutal and barbaric that the world was at the time when it was given, all of a sudden you realize that the law was grace. Okay, This was about restoring the world to what it was always intended to be. And so Torah, or law, was a gift It was God's instructions to Israel for how to live in this world. And Jesus is Torah incarnate. It's why we titled this series, In the Flesh. He is the word became flesh. And he lived out Torah with perfection. And now with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to help the people understand that God wants more than just empty rule following. He wants heartfelt obedience. Okay? So last week, if you were with us, you know that, uh, that Paul taught and we looked at the call that Jesus gave to his disciples to fish for people. And we saw that they dropped their nets, they left their boats, and they followed Jesus. They joined Jesus' ministry team, so to speak, okay? And I want to look at the end of Matthew chapter 4 before we get into the Sermon on the Mount so that you can see what has happened in between the text we studied last week and the text we're going to study this morning. Okay, this is going to show us, it's going to fill in that gap for us. But at the end of Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 23, it says this. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those who were suffering with severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Now watch this in verse 25. It says, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Okay, so we see that Jesus has been on the move. A lot has happened. A lot of time has passed. He's been traveling from one town to another, and he's been teaching, and he's been healing, and people are getting excited about Jesus. The text says that large crowds began following him. And I think it's important to note that this happened after Jesus has already spent a couple of years with his disciples. And it happens after Jesus has invited those disciples to share in the ministry. 
And it's important because, as Dan Spader has pointed out, if Jesus had drawn crowds before he raised up leaders to share in the ministry, he would have had a thousand baby Christians and no one to change diapers. It makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus was so strategic in everything that he did. And so Jesus, understand, as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus already has this large, devoted group of followers from all over Israel. These are people who have heard his message, they've seen his miracles, and they've decided, hey, this guy is worth following. I mean, he might be the one that we've been waiting for. And it's those people to whom Jesus addresses this sermon. And here's how it begins in Matthew 5, verse 1. It says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now I want to show you a picture of what is the traditional site of the Sermon on the Mount. This is uh, where that traditional site would be. You can see a building up on the hill, which is the Church of the Beatitudes. And people understand that this is, is likely where the Sermon on the Mount was given. And as you look at that, you realize that's not really a mountain, is it? It's not what I would think of as a mountain. It's more of a hillside. In fact, Luke calls it a hillside in his gospel. But remember, Matthew is writing his gospel to the Jews. And he wants them to see that this is an important connection to Mount Sinai. Okay, that just as Israel came to a mountain where they received the Torah, so now Jesus has brought his large group of followers to a mountain-esque setting to maximize the Torah. He has not come to abolish the law. He makes that clear in this sermon, but he came to fulfill it. And he will be the first person in history to be able to do it, to live a perfect, sinless life, and therefore to make himself a sufficient offering for the sins of the world. Now, Jesus begins his sermon in verse 3, and he says this. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I, I want you to write this word down, the word blessed. It's the first major theme I want you to, to see this morning and to watch for as you read this week. And what Jesus is describing in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount that we call the Beatitudes is a person who has a different character quality than perhaps what we would consider normal, right? And the Greek word that he uses to describe that person is the word makarios, Makarios, I can show you what that looks like on the screen. Our English Bible translates makarios as blessed, but it can also mean happy, blissful, or literally to be enlarged. So Jesus is referring to more than just a superficial happiness. 
Okay, he's referring to a deep, heartfelt joy, and it is a joy that is literally enlarged because of what's to come. Notice that Jesus, in the Beatitudes, he first points to a, to a current reality, poor in spirit, mourning, meek, hungering for righteousness. But then he shares the source of makarios, the source of blessedness, and it's the kingdom of heaven. It's the comfort that is coming and the fulfillment that will be ours. Again, it's a focus on what's ahead. Makarios is rooted in what's ahead. Now, this blessedness, it shows up in some strange places, doesn't it? Like someone who is mourning, and yet even in the midst of great sadness, there's still joy. Have you ever been around someone like that? I've been a pastor long enough now that I've done a number of funerals. And it's usually apparent almost immediately Uh, Who is experiencing makarios or blessedness and who is not? They just, they mourn differently. It's not that they don't mourn, but there's still a joy in the midst of mourning. Have you ever, ever experienced that? Have you ever been around someone who, no matter what's going on, they just seem to have a, a deep joy? Or maybe it's someone who had every right to lash out, to get even, or to, to attack someone else. But instead, they were just content to make peace like being right or winning the argument, like that wasn't even important to them. Have you ever experienced something like that? That's a picture of the blessedness that Jesus is talking about here. And it's born from, not from being focused on just the right here and the right now, but on what's to come. And it's not that we don't recognize that things are hard on this earth or that, that there's very real trouble in this world. It's just that we're content. Because our happiness is in what's ahead. So there's this theme of blessedness that Jesus points toward in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to watch for that as you read this week. And I want you to ask of yourself, if you are a follower of Jesus, am I experiencing makarios in my own life? Now to see the second theme, I want you to look a little farther ahead, but still in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to jump to verse 20. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5.20. He says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so theme number two, if you're taking notes, is righteousness. Just write down that word righteousness. And it's a word that you're going to see over and over again as you read the Sermon on the Mount this week. And the Jewish people were certainly familiar with this theme. In fact, the Hebrew word that is translated as righteousness in our Bibles is used over 150 times in the Old Testament. Okay, so these first century Jews, when Jesus uses this word righteousness, they're familiar with it. This isn't a shocker for them. But here's the problem that Jesus is highlighting. The Pharisees of Jesus' day viewed themselves as the perfect example of what righteous living looked like. They prided themselves on how good they were at following all of the rules of the Old Testament, along with a bunch of other rules they made up just for funsies, okay? So they would just add rule upon rule and, and follow it so you would see how good they were. And interestingly enough, Jesus speaks straight to this issue in the sermon when he says in Matthew 6, he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So the heart of the matter is this, you can follow all of the rules, but do it for all of the wrong reasons and still end up with a heart that is far from God. 
And that's what was going on with the Pharisees. And it's why Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses theirs, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, understand what it would have been like for a first century Jew to have heard this. The Pharisees are held as the righteous elite, like they're doing everything right and I'm doing everything wrong. And the Pharisees made sure you knew you were doing everything wrong. And so Jesus says, you've actually got to be better than the Pharisees. Your righteousness has to surpass the Pharisees. And can't you just kind of picture the people thinking, well, what Jesus, what would that even look like? Well, the cool thing about the Sermon on the Mount, and you're going to see this as you read, is that Jesus gives some very specific examples of what this righteousness looks like. For instance, he says in verse 21, he says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And if there were Pharisees in the crowd that day, which there probably were, they're thinking in their mind, check, never murdered anybody, I'm good to go, right? Verse 22, Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now hang on a second, Jesus. Hold up right there. You're equating anger to murder. I mean, that's a little extreme, don't you think? I mean, everybody gets angry, not everybody murders. Those things aren't even in the same ballpark. But remember, Jesus is maximizing the intent of the Torah. And so the rule is don't murder. But Jesus says anger is what leads to murder. Don't allow it in your heart. And you can see how Jesus takes it to the core of the issue. Or how about this one in verse 27? Jesus says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. And the Pharisees are maybe a little bit less excited this time. Like, oh man, what's he going to say this time? Verse 28, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now that's too far, Jesus, right? You've, you've gone too far with that. I mean, I might have a lustful thought now and then, but that is nowhere near as bad as actually committing adultery, is it? I mean, where does adultery start? Where does something like that take root? Well, isn't it in your heart? Doesn't it begin in our minds? And remember, these aren't rules to follow in order to be saved. This is how saved people live. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, no more trips to fantasy land, okay? There shouldn't even be a hint of sexual immorality in my followers. And time after time, Jesus redefines what righteous living looks like. And, and it's the Sermon on the Mount, he, he's showing the people that it's all about the heart. And you can know that as you read this week, you're going to see that he says over and over, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And you can know that every time he says that, he's about to make somebody uncomfortable because the Pharisees thought they had it all together. And Jesus is saying, no, you got to go farther. You got to go farther than what you're doing. You're just following rules. You're just about legalism. I'm talking about your heart. And we read earlier Jesus' words when he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. There should be a pull inside of us as followers of Jesus to want to pursue this, to want to live these righteous lives and to be done with old ways of thinking and old ways of living. And if there's not, man, we should be asking the question, why not? I mean, we should be really concerned about that. What's going on in my heart if righteousness isn't what I'm after and it's not that we're going to be sinless, okay? But we should sin less as we follow Jesus in righteousness. So I want you to watch for that theme 
as you read this week. The themes of blessedness, the theme of righteousness, and then that brings us to the final theme I want to highlight this morning. And it's found throughout the sermon, but I want to start in Matthew 6, 33. And just as a little background, Jesus has has just taught the people not to worry. He says, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about your body. Don't worry about any of those things. And then in verse 33, he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus says, seek God's kingdom first. And throughout the sermon, there's this attention that's given to the kingdom of God. You're going to see kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, uh, just the word kingdom throughout the sermon. I want you to write this down. The third major theme is a kingdom mindset. It's living with a kingdom mindset. Jesus says, my followers are to live with a constant focus on the kingdom of God. In fact, we should be so consumed with thoughts of God's kingdom that it, it directs us, it drives us, it, it, it drives every decision we make, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we invest in people, how we go about our work in everything that we do as followers of Jesus, that we would seek his kingdom first. And when I think about kingdom-mindedness, I I got to thinking about this. Uh, This is my passport. How many of you guys have one of these? Got a passport. Some of you uh, travel for work or you've traveled for pleasure, and and you know that it's absolutely critical if you're going to leave the United States to have one of these, right? My passport makes it very clear who I am. It makes it very clear where I am from, that I am a citizen of the United States of America. And there is an understanding that when my traveling is done, I'm going to return to the address that is listed on this passport. And I wonder if you realize that when you surrender your life to Christ, you receive citizenship to his kingdom. It's as if the earthly location is wiped off of this passport, and now it simply reads, heaven. That you become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And now this earthly location, it's not home anymore. If you're a follower of Jesus, this place is temporary. This world is not our home. It's the place that we're visiting. But the day is coming when we will spend eternity in heaven as citizens of God's kingdom. And it's why Jesus said of his disciples in John 17, 16, he said, they're not of this world, even as I'm not of this world. And Paul says in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. And the writer of Hebrews calls us strangers and exiles on earth. And Peter refers to us as aliens. And what they all understood is that this earth is temporary. It is not our home. We are citizens of the kingdom of God and our hearts and our minds should be focused there. What are you seeking first? Are you living as a citizen of heaven or a citizen of earth? Folks, we have a job to do here. We have a mission to fulfill. Jesus said at the beginning of this sermon, he said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And we are here to tell others the good news about Jesus, to invite as many others into the kingdom, to make disciples. But this world is not our home. And it's so easy to get comfortable here, isn't it? I mean, it's just so easy to put all of the focus right here, to live like life on planet Earth is all there is. But folks, if you don't hear me say anything else this morning, hear this. There is so much more. And the best is yet to come. And as followers of Jesus, our focus should be 
on what is ahead. Let's not lose sight of that. Let's live lives that declare God's kingdom until Jesus returns. Let's live with a kingdom mindset. Let's seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And as you read through the Sermon on the Mount this week, I think you're going to see some very specific details as to what that looks like. Let's be faithful to it. As we wrap up this morning, I want to come back to the big idea that we started with, that the Sermon on the Mount is not about how to live in order to be saved. Rather, it shows saved people how to live. Because there's application in this statement for everyone here this morning. And it could be that, that the first part of that statement is for you. And maybe you've been coming for a while or maybe even today is, is your very first day. And you're searching out faith. You're, you're studying Jesus with us. I'm so glad you're here. Keep coming, okay? Keep coming. This is a place where you are welcome to, to ask questions, to study, and to search out faith. But I want you to know, I want you to know that no matter what you've done or where you're coming from, there is hope for you in Jesus. There is forgiveness, there is grace, and you have been given an invitation through Jesus to be a child of God and a citizen of his kingdom. If you've got questions about that or you want to talk more about what a relationship with God looks like, I'd love to talk with you after the service. Paul tells us in Romans that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. That's how we begin a relationship with Christ. That's where it starts. Not with a list of rules, not with cleaning yourself up or getting to the point where you're good enough. You never will be. Neither will I. But it's by faith receiving that free gift that has been offered to you. And maybe today is the day that you would make a commitment to Christ to receive that gift and to begin following Jesus. I'd love to talk with you more about that. But the second application is equally important, and it's the reality that these verses show saved people how to live. Because Paul also tells us in the book of Romans that it is for good works that we've been saved. This life that we've been given, we're to live it on mission, displaying blessedness, pursuing righteousness, and living with a kingdom mindset. And I just wonder this morning, as we've briefly highlighted those things, has the Spirit of God kind of given you a nudge or maybe a swift kick in the rear and saying, it's time to go deeper on this. You've been a little bit apathetic or maybe even just flat out disobedient in one of these areas. And perhaps today's the day that you say, you know what, I repent of that. I repent of that, Lord. I recognize I haven't been pursuing righteousness. I recognize I don't have that character quality of blessedness. I recognize that my mindset has been on the here and now. And today's the day that I want to get back in line. I want to readjust my focus, start pursuing the things of your kingdom. And you can do that this morning as well. We're going to spend some time reflecting and remembering the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf this morning. We're going to celebrate communion together. And if you've surrendered your life to Christ, we invite you to join in this time with us, uh, whether this is your first time at Genesis or not. If you are a Christ follower, take communion with us this morning. Remember his body broken for you, his blood poured out for you. The host team's gonna come forward after I pray. They're gonna pass out the elements and you're gonna find two cups stacked together. The bread is in the bottom, the juice is in the top. And I want to invite you to spend some time reflecting, remembering what Christ did on our behalf. And then in your own time, when you're ready, take those elements. Let me pray for us this morning. 
Father God, we are so thankful for your great love for this world. Your word tells us that you so loved the world that you sent your one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And Lord, our makarios, our blessedness is rooted in the hope of Jesus. It is rooted in the day when he will be revealed and we will be taken home to heaven with him. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. We know that it cost Jesus everything. His body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. And Lord, as we spend time now taking these elements, remembering the sacrifice that he made on our behalf, we simply say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Take the elements in your time.